You can go ahead and turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 35. We've been coming through the book of Genesis together. We're going to be in chapter 35 and 36 today. At Grace Community Church, we're committed to expository preaching and teaching of God's Word. Um, is the reason we're coming from this text of Scripture. We're saying, Lord, what do you want to say to us through your Word today? My first introduction to expository preaching of God's Word was not a great one. Um, I was working at a cardiac rehab in Starkville, Mississippi, when an older, uh, I think, Baptist pastor told me the story about how he came across it. He said that he had... uh, that he had been, you know, he got on in a church when he was younger, and he had about 10 sermons, and uh, he used them all up, and he had to go to another church, and so he used those 10 sermons again, and had to go to another church, and so for me, this seemed like a really uh, unhealthy way, because then he said, well, then I, I, you know, I discovered expository preaching, which is kind of like this endless uh, sermon material, I guess, which is really a wrong mindset, rather than, we're not committed to it because of that. We're committed to it because 1 Timothy chapter 4, 13, there's a command that says, devote yourself to the public reading of the Scriptures and to the exhortation and to the teaching. And so we're devoted to it as a church because God commands that, we, that this is how we meet together, that we sit under, the, we're submitted to God's Word. We sit under the preaching of God's Word. So God doesn't provide men in this church that have great sermon ideas, and about 10 of them, uh, he, he provides His Word. And so we read the text, and we don't come with great ideas, but we come with what's in the text. So that's what we're asking today. What's in Genesis 35 and 36? Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. And Lord, we praise You that, that we can gather together around it this morning, not underneath the wisdom of men, Not underneath great speakers, Lord, or orators, Lord, but under your word. And God, we just say, we just say to you, Lord, as a matter of worship, that we love your word and we want to be obedient to your word and we want to worship you through the revelation that we find in your word. So, God, help us this morning to do just that. Holy Spirit, teach us. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Open our eyes that we might see. Beautiful, glorious truth here. Help us, Lord, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so in these two chapters, chapter 35 and 36, we've got the final contrast that's put before us between Jacob and Esau. Between Jacob and Esau, the son of faith and the son of disobedience. This is the final contrast in this portion of Genesis. And we've seen this contrast coming through uh, the, the Jacob narrative so far, right? So, so if you think about Genesis, Genesis is broken up into these different sections. So you got chapters 1 through 11 is this primitive history. Chapter 12 begins the Abraham narrative. And then after that, we get his son, the Isaac narrative. And then we, where we've been lately is in the Jacob narrative. So so what we have is, is throughout the Jacob narrative, there's this contrast between Jacob and Esau. We saw it in chapter 25, 
when Jacob and Esau were first born. We see things about these two that are twins that are coming into the world. Esau is born first, and yet in Genesis 25 it says the older shall serve the younger. We see it again in chapter 25 when we see uh, Jacob and Esau contending with each other over a birthright. We see it again in chapter 27 when we see them contending over the blessing of their father. We see it again in chapter 33 when we see Jacob and Esau reconciled. And so throughout this Jacob narrative, there's been this contrast between Jacob and Esau. And, and really, you know, it kind of it, it ends here with the, at the end of the Jacob narrative. But in a sense, we see it throughout the rest of the scriptures as well. We're gonna, we see it in Malachi of Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. We see a contrast there. We see it in the New Testament, in Romans, as that verse is quoted. And again, Jacob and Esau are put before us. We see it in the book of Hebrews, as it speaks about Jacob being a man of faith, and Esau being one that you don't want to imitate. So these, these, these contrasts are put before us really throughout the Bible. In fact, even in Obadiah, this book Obadiah, we see a contrast between their descendants. All of Obadiah is about the descendants of Jacob, Israel, and the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, or Edom. And you see this contrast put before you even in Obadiah. So, so how, how is it put before us in Genesis chapter 35 and chapter 36? And, and here's the way I want you to think about it. Is this is the last two chapters before a major transition happens in Genesis. So we're in, we're in chapter 35 and 36. And then when you get to chapter 37, major transition. We're moving out of the Jacob narrative. And we're moving into Jacob's sons. We're, we're, it's the story about Joseph and Joseph's brothers and everything from there on out. That's, the, that's the, uh, uh, the finishing story of Genesis. So we're about to transition out of this section with, this, with these last two chapters, chapters 35 and 36. And what we see in chapter 35 is Jacob's life laid out before us. And it's really a summary statement or sort of a, a wrapping up of Jacob's life in chapter 35. We're going to see three deaths, of a death of a mother figure, a death of a father, and the death of his wife. We're going to see his last child being born. And at the end of it, we see ge a genealogy of Jacob's children. So this is sort of a wrapping up in Genesis 35 of, the ja of Jacob's part of the Jacob narrative. Then you get to chapter 36, and it shows us Esau. So chapter 35, Jacob. Chapter 36, is going to show us Esau, and really it's a wrapping up of Esau's life. So this is the last time in Genesis Esau will be spoken of, and there's this extended genealogy that goes from his immediate family out to his uh, sort of a political, uh, the, the, the chiefs and the kings that came from him later on. So this is a wrapping up, chapter 35, wrapping up Jacob's life, and chapter 36, a wrapping up of Esau's life. And there's really sort of a hinge point that's right in the middle of these two chapters. We're going to read that real quick. Chapter 35, look at verse 27 through 29. This is sort of a, a hinge point where you see Esau and Jacob together. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons, here they are, his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. So 
So here you have Esau and Jacob together for the last time, burying their fathers. It gets ready to move on, not, not just from Isaac to the Jacob narrative as we've been in, but it's about to move on to Jacob's children. And you had this hinge point of Esau and Jacob together burying their fathers. And in the chapter before, chapter 35, is Jacob. And in the chapter afterwards, chapter 36, we have Esau. So let's look at it with that sort of framework in mind. So we're in Genesis chapter 35. You can go back to verse 1. This is a final look at Jacob. Now this man, if you remember, as we're getting ready to read verse 1 through 4 together. This man has come a long way spiritually. Do you remember that? As we've kind of read through Jacob's narrative together. This man has come a long way spiritually. If you remember, it all began in chapter 28. Whenever Jacob fled from his brother, after he did his brother wrong, he fled from his brother because his brother's trying to murder him, and he lands in this certain place, and God appears to him. In chapter 28, God appears to Jacob, gives him the seed promise, gives him the land promise. He sees the stairs coming down from heaven to earth with the Lord at the top, giving this messianic promise to him. And Jacob, at that point, that begins this transition of this man is about to be transformed before our eyes. And he names that place Bethel. Bethel. So let's read now verse 1 through 4. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Now what we see here is God calling Jacob back to Bethel. And we see Jacob being obedient to that call. And he begins to lead. He goes back himself and leads his family back to Bethel, just as God told him to. So the command in verse 1, go back, Jacob, go back to Bethel and, and build an altar there. This altar of worship. I want you to build it in this place. Go back to that place where I originally appear to you. And you see Jacob's obedience here. He obeys. He does what God said. Uh, this, this is what tran, you know, a transformed life in God. This is what a transformed life looks like. You want to obey God. And you see that in Jacob's life here. And if you remember, it wasn't always this way. This is a man that is Jacob, the deceiver, who becomes Israel, the one who strives with God and prevails. This is a man that's been transformed. He has a heart to obey God. But he hasn't always been this way. If you, if you think about Jacob's life, uh, as we talked about a couple of weeks back, Jacob was not just a nice guy. He was not just a good guy. But this is a man that had a heart to obey God's Word. This is one of the clearest signs of true conversion, of true transformation, that you have a heart for the Word of God, that the commandments of God mean something to you, and you want to obey them. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, it says, By this we know that we know Him. If we keep His commandments, if someone says, I know Him, but then doesn't keep His commandments, he's a liar, and the truth 
is not in him. And so we see this in Jacob's life. This man, has had a, he's, he's been transformed. He has a heart for the Word of God. He's not just a nice guy. He's not just, just a good old guy. There's plenty of those that are, go, that are around that are headed towards hell. But rather, he's a man whose heart's been changed towards the Word of God. He wants to obey. And so God says, go to Bethel, build the altar. Jacob moves in that direction. Now another part of his obedience, we see in verse 2 and 4, that Jacob's transformation has affected the way he leads his family. So Jacob's transformation has affected the way he leads his family. It says there in verse 2, his first move to the command is, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. So he tells his family, Put away the foreign gods and purify yourself. We're going to worship God. And they do just that in verse 4. They listen to His words. They do what He said. And He buries the idols. He buries the foreign gods. The foreign gods had infiltrated Jacob's family. They had come into Jacob's family. Maybe it was through, if you remember, uh, uh, Rachel had stolen Laban's false gods. Maybe it was through that. Maybe these were false gods and idols that they had picked up from Shechem. We don't know for sure. But either way, false gods had infiltrated Jacob's family. And so Jacob leads his family to submission to God. He leads his family to submission to God. Give me the idols, I'm going to bury them under a tree somewhere. This is what transformed men do. So, so husbands and fathers in the room. Now listen, I, this is just in the text. I didn't plan this for Father's Day, okay? It's just in the text of Scripture. Husbands and fathers, take note to what you see here. Listen to me. Satan hates your family. Satan hates your family. And false gods will seek to infiltrate your family. There's no doubt about it. Your role as a, as a husband, your role as a father, is more than just bringing home the bacon. It's more than that. You understand that. But rather, you are the gatekeeper of your home. This is what transformed men do. Transform men like Jacob. They're the gatekeepers of their home. You're not just one that brings home the bread. You're actually one who is an idol killer in your home. You're a worship leader in your home. Bury the false gods. Let's go worship Him in Bethel. Let's go build the altar. And so you're a worship leader in your home. So husbands and fathers, do your job. Let me exhort you, as you look at Jacob's transformed life, let me exhort you to do your job. If you remember Eve, in the Garden of Eden, Eve was the first one to eat of the fruit. You remember that? And yet when God comes to deal with that, and He knocks on Adam and Eve's door, He doesn't ask for Eve, He asks for the man of the house. He says in Genesis chapter 3, Adam, where are you? Ephesians chapter 5 says, the husband is the head of his wife. Be a faithful head. Do your job. In Ephesians chapter 6, when it speaks about parenting, it does not kick the parenting responsibilities to the mom. It doesn't kick it in that direction in Ephesians 6. That's an American idea. That's not a biblical idea. It's American. It's not biblical. And rather, rather than that, Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, it doesn't say parents, it says, Fathers, bring up your children in the training and the admonition of the Lord. This is what transformed, transformed men like Jacob do. And so if false gods are infiltrating your home without a fight, Husbands, fathers, it's your responsibility. This is what transformed men do. Now, Jacob, 
can be this worship leader in his home and lead to build this altar in Bethel. Why? Because he knows God. This is a man who really knows God. And here's this phrase that I love. Look at it in verse 3. Jacob saying to his family, Let us arise, go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God. Listen, he knows his God. Listen to this. To the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. This is a man who knows his God. This is the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. Do you know God like that? Do you know Him? When you think about Him and you think of distressing moments you've had throughout your life, that He's the God that I called out to Him in distress and that God has answered me again and again and again. Psalm 116 verse 1 says, I love God. I love God because He's heard my voice. And since He's inclined His ear to me, I will call to Him all the days of my life. Do you know God like that? I love this phrase. He's the God that answers me in my distress, and He's been with me wherever I've gone. By the way, that's exactly what He promised Jacob that He would do. It's exactly what He told Jacob that He would do. Do you know God like that? Now you get to verse 5 through 7 here. And we see Jacob and his family, their their arrival in Bethel. Let's read that. Verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed Himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now in verse 5, we just read, so they arrive in Bethel, they're, they're, they're building this altar of worship. And in verse 5, we see on the journey there, we see God's protection over Jacob and his family. Did you see it there in verse 5? As they journeyed, a terror fell from God upon all the cities that were around them. Now, if you remember chapter 34, uh, we saw Jacob's concern. You remember that? The, the chapter just before this, that, that uh, Jacob's concern, his sons had gone out and killed all the Shechemites. And he says, he looks at his sons and says, you have made me stink to all the nations around. And now they're going to try to attack. We're this small band and they're going to try to attack us. They're going to try to kill us now. And then you see here, but God can deal with that because here's God's protection. A terror from God fell upon all the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. How do you think this would have landed on the original hearers? Those who first, those Israelites coming out of Egypt, they had coming out of Egypt, they were headed back into the promised land, just like Jacob's headed back into the promised land. They're worried that the nations around are going to try to destroy them, just like Jacob's worried that the nations around are going to try to destroy them. How would this have landed on them when they read, a terror from God fell on all those nations so they didn't even touch them? And if you remember when the original hearers, uh, uh, the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, when they first went into the promised land, that's exactly what they experienced. First town that they go to, first city they attack is Jericho. And when they hear what's going on in Jericho, they realize that in Jericho the people's hearts had melted because they heard about what God had done 40 years ago whenever God delivered them from the Egyptians and drowned the Egyptians into the Red Sea. This should have landed on them with some real encouragement. 
Now, verse 6 and 7, so verse 5, we see the protection. Verse 6 and 7, Jacob, they, they arrive in Bethel, uh, Bethel, they build an altar of worship. Now, this altar that they build, they, they're building this altar in a pagan land. What's it meant to communicate as they build this? Verse 6 and 7. What, what is God, what is Jacob communicating by building this altar of worship in this place? And I love this quote from Kent Hughes. Kent Hughes said this, Bethel was a long-standing site of Canaanite worship. The intent of the altar was to drive a stake into the heartland of pagan worship. I love that. That's my prayer for Grace Community Church, that we would be a people of true worshipers, and it would be like driving a stake into a pagan world, a worship Jesus stake right into a pagan land in which we live. Now, they're in, they're in Bethel. They built this altar. Uh, they, he's, he's a worshiper of God. He's obedient to God. He's leading his family into obedience and worship of God. But I want you to understand from, from the, follow, the following verses that that does not mean his life is without difficulty. The transformed life, like Jacob's, is not a life without difficulty. In other words, when you become a follower of God, it doesn't mean you receive some sort of immunity to difficulty. It doesn't work that way. God's plan is that He works right in the midst of hard stuff, painful stuff. So I want you to see that here. If, we're, if you're coming through Genesis 35 and you're thinking about the way Jacob's life is closed out, here, here you, you have literally have three deaths that are recorded for us from people that he loved. And I want, you, I want to show you those really quick. The first death we see is in verse 8. Chapter 35, verse 8. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel, so he called its name Alan Bakuth. So this, this is Deborah. This is his mother's nurse. This is uh, more than likely a mother figure in his life, and now she's dead. And the place that he, that he, na- he names this place, Alan Bakuth, which means the oak, the oak of weeping. That this is a brokenness, this is a painful experience, that this woman, like a mother figure in his life, has died. She's dead, and he's weeping. Now another tragedy, look at verse 16 through 21, where his beloved wife dies. Verse 16, Then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Ani. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died. and She was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. So this is the death. So tragedy one, Deborah's dead. Now his beloved wife, the one that his soul loves, the one that he, it's easy to spend seven years laboring for this woman, and now she's dead. It's, ironic, it's a sort of an ironic thing that the, the very woman who had this idolatry problem. Do you remember it? When she says, give me children or I die. 
And it's very ironic that this is the very woman that dies with her second child, that dies in childbirth. Now you imagine how painful this was. You imagine the sorrow in Jacob's heart. In fact, I want to read to you Genesis 48, don't flip there, 48 verse 7. As Jacob recounts this, he says, As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. Rachel died. So how hard, how painful. Not only that his beloved is dead, but even the way that she goes out, she names her son Ben-Ani, which is the son of my sorrow. That she dies in sorrow. She dies in sadness. And you imagine how this landed. Again, I say that the, the transformed life is not a life without difficulty. Deborah's dead. Rachel, his beloved, is dead. And then a third painful death. We see it in verse 29. We've already read it. But we see Jacob's dad, Isaac, is now dead. Dead, dead, dead. The, the, the life with God, walking with God, the transformed life, is not a life that's immune to difficulty. And we need to trust God in the midst of that. Now, it gets worse, okay? Even worse than the pain of death is the pain of a child that's going astray. A child that rebels against you and a child that rebels against God. Even worse than the pain of death. And you see, this also happens to him if you look at verse 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben, that's his firstborn, went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. And this is an intense pain of a child going astray. More than likely, this was not necessarily a move of lust for Reuben as much as it was a grab for power. You remember how Absalom uh, went into all of his father's concubines to show his power later on in the Scriptures? And this seems to be a grasp for power from Reuben. Later on in Genesis 49... Uh, this will be spoken of by Jacob as a sin, as something that's evil, as something that brings down a curse on, on this man, Reuben. So one more time, I'll say it. With these pains, the pains of death and the pain of a child going astray, the life of following God, the transformed life that Jacob has is not a life without difficulty. Sometimes severe, painful difficulty. So, if you aim, so here's something to take away. If you aim to live an obedient life of worship to God, you will experience the hardness of painful circumstance. You'll experience the hardness of painful circumstance. But you will also experience, as you follow God, the hope of His promises. You'll experience the hope of His promises. And we see that in verses 9 through 15. So glance back at chapter 35, verse 9. We're going to read verse 9 through 15. Now hear me out. There's a lot of repetition here. There's a lot of things that have already been said about Jacob and promises that have already been given to him, but we're about to see it repeated in verses 9 through 15. It's like at the end of his life, we're being reminded that if we zoom out, that Jacob's life has a bigger picture meaning here. It's bigger than just what you see in this moment. But you're being reminded of these promises, even messianic promises that he receives. Look at verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again. And when he came from Paddan Aram, and when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. 
And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Now, what we see here in this reminder, things we've already seen, is we see Jacob's name, name change. That this man, this is a transformed man. This man is no longer Jacob, this man is Israel. No longer the deceiver, but he's the one that strives with God and has prevailed. We see in verse 11, the seed promise that we've been tracing through Genesis. That in your seed, there's something special about the seed, the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of Isaac, the offspring of Jacob. Through them's coming one that's going to bless all nations. And in verse 12, we see the land promise repeated to Jacob again, just like it was spoken to Abraham, his, his grandfather. Just like it was spoken to Isaac. So we have the seed promise and the land promise, which, by the way, according to Galatians 3.8, these are gospel promises. These are gospel promises. Galatians 3.8 says that, that the Scripture preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying this, In you, in your seed, all nations shall be blessed. These are gospel promises. That through him is coming, through Jacob is coming a Messiah. It's going to bless all the nations. So these are gospel promises. The, these are the promises of God. Promises of God are the... This is the way that you live out 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. You know that verse? 2 Corinthians 4, 18, it says, We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Because the things which are seen are temporary, but things which are unseen are eternal. Isn't that an interesting verse? We look not at things that you can see. We're not, imagine how crazy that sounds if you've never heard it before. We're not looking at the things you can look at. We're looking at the things you can't look at. We're not looking at the things that are seen. We're looking at the things that are unseen. This is how you do it through, through promises of God. That the promises of God's Word reveals things to you that are in the future, that are eternal, that are invisible, and you stake your life on them. And therefore you look to the things that are unseen not to the things that are seen. And so Jacob is given these promises that allows him to look to things that are unseen, invisible things. And the last thing I'll mention about Jacob as we you know, close out the record of his life, his part in this redemption narrative that we're reading about in Genesis, uh, last thing I'll say is just I want to mention the fulfillment of these promises. These promises for Jacob, these gospel promises have been fulfilled. So, so one place we see it in his sons. Look at the genealogy in verse 22, the last part of verse 22. It says, now the sons of Jacob were twelve. Twelve sons from Jacob. This is part of the fulfillment of that promise. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel... Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan 
Aram. And so here we see, you know, this promises is connected to his offspring. And here we read a genealogy at the end, at the end of the record of, of his part of the narrative. We see this genealogy of his 12 sons. He's got these 12 sons, and we find out later are going to be 12 sons that with their families are taken, or they go into Egypt, and they're enslaved in Egypt. And after 400 years, these 12 sons, of course their descendants, come out of Egypt as the 12 tribes of that nation called Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel is what comes out of Egypt 400 years later. And it's promised that through one of these tribes, namely Judah, is going to come a promised Messiah. That through Judah is going to come a promised Messiah. We even see that in Genesis 49. As Jacob's, and with Jacob's dying breath, he says about Judah, one of those sons and one of those tribes, that there's coming one and the scepter, the kingly scepter, will never depart from Judah. In other words, there's coming through the lineage of one of these tribes, Judah, a king who will be king forever. According to Genesis 49. And Bible history records this for us, that it records the lineage of, as you read through 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, you get the lineage of those kings of Judah. That's what he just said to Jacob, kings are going to come from you. And we get the lineage of this king, and he had a son, you know, dates beginning with David. And then David had a son named Solomon, and Solomon had a son named Rehoboam, and Rehoboam had a son, and on and on it goes until that final son, that final king is born, the one that's coming from Jacob, the one that's coming from the, the tribe of Judah, Christ appears. And in Matthew chapter 1, our first book of the New Testament, where Jesus is introduced, it begins with a genealogy that begins with Abraham, the one that was promised through him is coming to Christ. And it, and it goes through Isaac and through Jacob and through all these kings of Judah. And it comes to the Christ who is the one true king, the son of Jacob, and yet Jacob's Lord. Jacob's son, and yet Jacob's God. And Christ comes. This is the fulfillment of these promises. Now, as we move towards Genesis 36, you know, we're going to... You know, we're looking to close out. You know, we're, we're going to step out of Genesis for a time. We're going to close out this Jacob narrative section of Genesis. And as we get ready to do that, when you get to chapter 36, there's a pivot that's made towards Jacob's counterpart, which is Esau. And, and we see in most of this chapter, in chapter 36, is just this extended genealogy that becomes, it begins with his immediate family, and it becomes more political as the gene genealogy uh, uh, broadens out. So we're not going to read this whole thing. I think you should read the genealogies of God's Word. They're breathed out by God, but for time's sake, we're not going to read all of chapter 36, but we, we will read a small portion of it. But first let me say this, if you look at verses 1 through 5, so we're moving towards Esau now. Chapter 36, verse 1 says, These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. And verses 1 through 5 mentions Esau's wives and his immediate family, his children. These are the children and the wives that he had while he lived in the land of Canaan, while he lived in the promised land. And then you get to verse 6 through 8. And let's read verse 6 through 8 together. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, 
for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojourners could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. So here we see Esau takes up all his people. Esau takes up all of his possessions. He uproots himself from the promised land. And it says he goes and he settles in the hill country of Seir. Now, on the one hand, this is presented in just a nonchalant way. It's just presented in a very, as like a really natural event, right? That the land couldn't hold both of these families, and so, and so Esau has to leave. And we know that this is according to the blessing that Isaac gave to Jacob and Esau, that actually Isaac said in that blessing to Esau that, that you, would, you would not dwell in this land. So, so we knew that this was coming. So it seems like such a natural event on the one hand. Now, on the other hand, this is an extremely sad thing when you realize how Esau got to this place. This is a very, very sad event when you realize how Esau got to this place. Why is it that Esau, he never seemed to show much interest in the promises of God? Why did Esau never seem to show much interest in the promises of God? Think about it. He's born into a family that had received the seed promise. He's born into a family that had received the land promise. He's, bo- he's born into a family that has the messianic promises. These promises are staring him in the face. The, the messianic promises have been ringing in his ear, and yet Esau has shown himself to be bored with it all. We saw it back in Genesis chapter 25 that he's bored with it. He's more interested, it says, in a bowl of stew than his birthright that contains these promises. He's willing to sell his birthright for just a meal. He's more interested in what's coming up for lunch than the promises, the messianic promises of God. And now we see, just like it says in 25:34, thus Esau despised his birthright, and now we see he's just leaving the promised land outright. He's departing from the promised land. First he went after pagan women. Do you remember that? And now he's about to go immerse himself and live in a pagan land. And what we see in verse 9, all the way to the end of the chapter, so verse 9 all the way to 43, is we, again, we see his genealogy, as I said, becoming uh, more political. It begins with his sons, and it, and it kind of escalates up to uh, the chiefs that came from his family. You look at verse 20, and all of a sudden we're really seeing the assimilation of Esau into this pagan land where he's so intermixing with these godless people, these people of unbelief, that he just assimilates. And all of a sudden, his family, you know, it all, it all begins with a little separation from the promised land. Next thing you know, his whole family is, is absorbed in pagan unbelief. And that's the way this genealogy is laid out for us, is this intermixing with the pagans of the land. <clears throat> now, if you think about it like this, that it, that it begins with being bored with God's promise, and it becomes straight-up opposition to the plan of God, to the people of God. I mean, he's just, he's just bored with the promise, right? Now he's opposed to the plan of God. He's opposed to the people of God. You say, how do you know that? You keep reading throughout your Bible, and, and over and over and over again, you see Esau, which became the Edomites, and you see the Edomites opposed to the people of God. 
You see it in Numbers chapter 20 as the Edomites oppose Israel as they're led out by Moses. You see it in 1 Samuel chapter 14 as the Edomites oppose the first king of Israel who is Saul. You see it in, 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 uh, in 2 Kings chapter 4, uh, excuse me, the other one was 1 Samuel 14, the other one's 2 Kings chapter 14, where again you see the Edomites fighting Israel. You see it in Obadiah, remember I told you about Obadiah, well, the, the whole book is devoted to God rebuking the Edomites because they are opposing the people of God, and they're laughing at them and mocking them as they're taken captive out of the land of Israel. So you see this opposition that's coming from the lineage of Esau. And then get this, there was an Edomite king that one day tried to kill Christ as soon as he was born into this world. That Edomite king is King Herod the Great. An Edomite king trying to kill that promised seed. How about that for a terrible lineage? A horrific lineage. Terrible fruit from your labors. Now this is Jacob, chapter 35, and Esau, chapter 36. And I want us to close by thinking about this sort of question. What's the difference between Jacob and Esau? As we close out this section and we got this final contrast between these two, what is the difference between Jacob and Esau? And it's not this. It's not good versus bad. It's not Jacob good, Esau bad, good guy, bad guy. It's not that, right? Both of these men are presented to us in the book of Genesis as wretches, as scoundrels. These men are sinners that must repent. Now, one of them truly repents. The other one just settles down in his older age, which is not repentance. So the, the, the difference between these two men is not, well, one of them is a sinner and the other one's not. These men are both sinners. They're both men that need saving. They're both men that need Christ, the Messiah, to come and die for their sins. They're both like that. So that's not the difference. What's the difference between these two men? Now, obviously, as we read it, there's a lot of differences. But I mean, what are some root differences? What is a root difference? If you get down to the very bottom of it all, what's the difference between Jacob and Esau? And I would say to you that it's, it's all about what you do with the promises of God. It's all about what you do with the gospel promises of God. Think about Esau. Messianic promise right in his face. Bored. He's bored with it. It's just words to him. They never affected him. He's a man of unbelief. He has no faith in that promise that he heard. But what about Jacob? Hebrews 11 mentions Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and a lot of these people from Genesis. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, what did Jacob do with the promises? Well, Hebrews 11, 13, it says, These all died in faith. In faith. Not having received the promises, and receive all the, 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 uh, the uh, benefits of the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were persuaded and embraced them. They embraced these promises. Esau's bored with the promises. Jacob embraces the gospel promise. He's persuaded of the gospel promise. It has a lot to do. So a root difference, a root difference between these two men is what do they do with the promises of God? Now, I want to come back to that verse from a moment ago. So 2 Corinthians 4.18. 
I mentioned to you a moment ago, it says, we look not, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So again, it sounds crazy, right? I'm looking at something, not that you can look at a scene, but I'm looking at something that is unseen. Now apply that to Jacob and Esau. Esau looked to the things that were seen. He looked to the things that were temporary. Jacob, through the lens of the promises, looked to what was unseen, looked to what was eternal, and he embraced the promises of God. He didn't reject them. What's the difference between these men? What do you do with the promise of God? What do you do with the gospel promises of God? Esau's life was a life of looking to the things that are seen. Now I want to read something to you from Kent Hughes. Kent Hughes wrote about Esau living a life looking to the things that are seen. Esau could not see beyond what was in front of him. He possessed no vision, no spiritual imagination. He had no eyes or mind for God or for heaven or for hell. Spiritual realities were to him dull and opaque. He was a single dimensional soul. Pleasure now was his guiding star. For him, all that mattered was the excitement of the hunt, a hearty meal, a woman's company, all things in the proper perspective and place. But pleasure is all that Esau could see. Thus he despised his birthright, selling it for a single meal, and likewise he despised his heritage for the pleasure of Canaanite women. Esau's arrogance brutalized everything precious to life and fixed him... And I would add, in his family, on his tragic course. He just looked to what was seen. It's just pleasures now. It's just this life right now, what I can see in this moment. That's what means something to me. It's the way I line up my life according to everything in this life that I can see that's temporary now. Brothers and sisters, don't be like Esau. Don't be like Esau. But Jacob... Transform life, looking at the things that are unseen. Now, how did he do that? Again, he did it through God's promises, right? Hebrews eleven thirteen. It says he died in faith, not having received the promises, but by having seen them afar off, he was persuaded and embraced those promises. It, it exposed the unseen, the invisible realm, the spiritual realities, and he lined his life up according to those things. The gospel promise through which he lived his life looking to the things that are unseen. Now what about you? What are you doing with the promises of God? This means everything. What, what, are, you doing, what are you doing with the gospel promises of God? There's all kind of promises in God's Word that if you believe them, it radically transforms your whole life. There's promises about His first coming. John 3.16, God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. If you believe that, it changes everything. There's promises about His second coming. 
1 Thessalonians 4, 16 says the Lord will descend from heaven. One day it's going to happen. He's going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead that are in Christ are going to rise first. And then we who are alive and remain are going to be called up together with Him to meet Him in the clouds. And thus we'll always be with the Lord. Promises from God that if you believe it changes everything. Don't be like Esau. Don't live for this life, the things that you can see. What about what you can't see that you actually get a glimpse of through God's promises? What are you doing with the promises of God? And I want to plead with everyone here to believe them and stake your life on them and let them change everything. Will you be like Esau or will you be like Jacob? Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your Word. Your Word is so precious. And God, I pray for every soul here that's considering these Scriptures, Lord. Every soul. God, make us a people that do not stake our life on the scene, the temporary things of this life, the pleasures now. God, You told us in Hebrews 12 to watch out, to watch out for the church unless there be one that's like Esau, that's so near to messianic promises, so near to the truth, and yet bored with it. God, I pray that You would cast out, that You would cast out the, this heart of Esau in our midst, God. And if there are any here, even now, that are like Esau, God, that You would give them repentance, real repentance, that they would come to You, Lord Jesus, and they would stake their life, not on what's seen, but what's unseen. God, I pray that the, the gospel promises, Lord, will land on us, Lord, with, with persuasion and that we would embrace them and love them. And I pray, Lord, that we would live transformed lives. I praise You, Lord, that You have done that all across this room. Lord, do it more. Encourage our souls, even today, not to look at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. We love You, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.